At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. And now, finally, we can turn our attention to other things other than the U.S. election and maybe focus back in on science. So joining me today is Adam Bristol. Welcome back. Hey, Andre. It's great to be here again. So, Adam, what uh, what caught your eye this week? Well, there's been some pretty amazing stuff coming out, but the one I want to talk about first is a paper that came out in Nature Astronomy at the very end of uh, October. So I guess it was the October 26th issue. You may have heard some of the kind of popular press on this, but I was interested enough to go into the paper itself. This has to do with an estimation of the amount of frozen ice on the moon. Okay. So it's been theorized for a long time that there are polar regions where there's ice trapped on the moon, particularly in those permanently shadowed regions in the kind of extreme north and the extreme south. So could we actually see these when we look at a full moon? Is it like the dark spots? Or are those just craters? We wouldn't be able to. Those are those are craters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. This is more of an estimation of based on because they're permanently in shadows that they're they can basically. Uh, I am not a physicist, a geophysicist, <laughs> but this is okay. uh, my understanding from reading the abstract and the rest of the paper is that there is uh, basically permanently shadowed parts of the moon that is able to keep what are called cold traps, right? So this Mm -hmm. is water in the form of ice, essentially perpetually, because it's extremely cold there. But what's new about this paper is that since 2009, there, there has been a series of lunar satellites that have been closely studying and closely monitoring the moon with the far-off goal of having a lunar base there. Uh, There's one particular satellite there called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, or LRO, which has been taking very fine-grained photos of the surface of the moon basically, you know, for a decade now. Mm -hmm. Well, wait, wait, wait. So like in one of Neil Stevenson's novels or like in a lot of actually science fiction, the idea is that to get out, you know, to the outer planets, you need a lunar base so that we can kind of fuel up and then... Yeah, because the base, essentially my understanding again, is that the kind of the liftoff energy expenditure from the moon is going to be far, 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 far less than it is the energy expenditure to get off the surface of the earth. Right, because there's, you know, less gravity. Yeah. Exactly okay. right. And so that, but that's an important point because if there is in fact water on the moon, that could be broken up obviously into hydrogen and oxygen, which can be some of the basic constituents of rocket fuel. Sure. So you'd have a readily available resource there to be used in a lot of different ways, not just rocket fuel, of course, but there's going to be water for human beings, uh-huh. but also oxygen. Uh, and transporting water from our Earth up to the moon would be incredibly difficult 
high energy expenditure because it's just so darn heavy. Sure. So anyways, what this this article is looking at is called Micro Cold Traps on the Moon. It, it, in the title, it gives it away in that what the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is now allowing these scientists to do is to map these shadowed regions of the surface on a much smaller spatial scale. Hmm. So where historically, we were able to see, look, you can look at the poles. They're always enshrouded in, in shadows. Therefore, you won't have the rapid sublimation when the when the sun kind of hits that part of the moon, so those could be regions where ice could be made, could be retained in in perpetuity. But what this paper really shows is that we've been greatly underestimating the theoretical extent of water on the moon in the form of ice, because there are so many more of these micro cold traps, mm. which can get down to much smaller. You know, in the some sense, could be is the limit of like one centimeter. Hmm. Uh, is squared, but it could be just on a smaller scale. So these could be all little repositories all around the Earth's surface because of the angle of the axis of, of rotation, the angle of the sun coming at it. And so these are almost always enshrouded in shadows. Hmm. And there's some fantastic photos in the paper of just high-resolution pictures of the surface of the moon. I'm, hmm. I'm just still still blown away by that. And even with that recent, uh, the comet, uh, um, you know, those, those basically landed on a, on a comet and took some, you know, some of the comet dust. The photos mm -hmm. from that are just stunning as mm -hmm. well. So just to think that way up there in the outer space, these human-made uh, instruments are collecting really incredible data for us. But so this was this was seemed like a pretty cool paper. So it got a lot of press. It's called Micro Cold Traps on the Moon. It was published in the October 26th issue of Nature Astronomy. And the lead author is P.O. Hain, and they're at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. Awesome. It sounds like science fiction is getting ever closer. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, a paper caught my eye this week because there's been a project that one of my students at USF has been working on, on dyslexia, uh, developmental dyslexia. And I did an event last year where I collaborated with the UCSF Dyslexia Center. And what the researchers are finding there is that people with dyslexia, whereas dyslexia is largely a left hemisphere problem, sometimes show enhancement of right hemispheric functions, including expressing emotions and so forth. And so I think that link with uh, you know emotional expressiveness and dyslexia was really interesting and quite novel. But as we were introducing our talks, we were talking about dyslexia, we've always, at least I have, always thought about it as something that is true to our current civilization, but not something that has etched wiring into our brains through evolution. Because we've only really been, I mean, humans really have only been reading for like, what, maybe 6,000 years, but most humans have only been reading for like 600 years, right, since the invention of the press. So it's not nearly enough time for the brain to have evolved special wiring or circuitry devoted to reading. And Yet, there's this paper which doesn't completely call into question that logic, but suggests that maybe there's more to the story and that there is more uh, a sort of innate wiring that is then harnessed for reading later on. And so this kind of is actually changing the way I think about reading networks and what they might be. So this paper looked at functional connectivity, which is essentially how different brain regions communicate with each other functionally. So you could you could distinguish functional connectivity from structural connectivity, where you're actually then really talking about sort of physical wiring. 
And in the functional connectivity, we know that experience is a big driver, right? So we can see changes in in the functional connectivity when a person learns to play an instrument, for example, or learns some, you know, some kind of skill, even cognitive skill, and we see with reading. Well, it turns out that so you know in the in the temporal lobe there's a play there's a part of the brain that's specific for recognizing faces. Sure. Yeah, it's called the fusiform face area. And there's some, you know, controversy about whether it's really specific to faces or it's an expertise region mm-hmm. because, for example, you know, bird experts, bird watchers tend to store images of different birds in that same region. Right, right. Um, but damage to that region leads to a very well-known, well-described prosopagnosia. Exactly, which is the inability to recognize faces. So you can you can look at a picture of a face and point out where the eyes are and the nose are and the mouth is, but you don't know whose face it is. <laughs> Even if you've seen that face, you know, hundreds of thousands of times, you you can't tell. Um, so that's that's called face blindness. And right next to the fusiform face area, there is an area called the visual word form area. Hmm. And interestingly, this area is also experience driven. So it seems to develop the expertise with, you know, with learning, with experience. Um, So people who are not literate, for example, don't have the same functional connectivity or the same kind of reaction to words in this area as people who are literate. And, And to me, reading is so interesting because I think it's such a great example of how magical the brain can seem or how magical a skill can seem to people. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I think we tend to attribute some kind of, you know, supernatural or magical or bizarre, unexplained ESP process when somebody can do something that we don't understand how they can do. So, for example, you know, great chess players who can kind of memorize, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different strategies or positions or, you know, in, in, in some cases, I think there a lot of what people call intuition can be based on the fact that that there's this kind of experience that is built in. But reading is like that for all of us, unless you can't read, mm-hmm. in which case someone like our son is six, he's learning how to read. And I think sometimes when we read to him, he does think it's magical because he mm-hmm. doesn't quite, you know, know how that is possible. And that you and I, we can't not read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, it's very hard not to read a word when it's put in front of us. It's so automatic. So it doesn't feel as if it's something that we're doing effortfully. Anyway, that's all uh, tangential, except to say that what was really interesting about this study is that they found a, a similar functional connectivity between this area and the proto-language networks in week-old babies. Hmm. Okay. So it maps onto what what ha- what we see in adult liter- literate adult brains, and to me that was really fascinating because it suggests that a little bit like babies when they're born, they're primed to look at faces. They are more interested in stimuli that look like faces than in stimuli that don't. Right? You show them something that you know looks like a face, they'll spend more time looking at it. It seems to be true as well that there might be some kind of underlying propensity towards words. You know, I, it's it's an interesting thought. I mean, if you take a step back, the nature of language, as I understand it, it's a, a symbolisms, right? These are mm-hmm. squiggles mm-hmm. on paper or some other surface that we then interpret mm-hmm. as having some meaning and then collections of them. And so the written word that we know in, in English is obviously a very different stylistically than other languages of the word. But in essence, there are all these kind of symbolic information 
conveyances. But there are probably other forms of human interaction that involve symbolic conveyance too. Could be gesturing, facial expressions, music. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering too if you know what we're focused on are some of these, you know, these unique abilities that humans have have you know um, evolved or or rather culturally evolved in terms of language. But they're tapping into what are already many modules in the brain that were evolved for related but distinct other purposes. I think mm -hmm. this would be very much a Leda Cosmides and John Tooby, you know, kind of evolutionary psychology view of this um, to help explain why does it appear that we have regions of the brain that seem to be uniquely involved in reading when reading yeah. is such an evolutionarily recent. <laughs> yeah. But there are other, you know, I guess related skill sets mm -hmm. that you could see over the course of a still relatively recent but a much longer time frame in terms of more symbolic reasoning that I, that I could imagine. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So this study also is a sort of a, a follow-up of a study that that was longitudinal where they looked at kids who were five who couldn't read and they mapped the location of this region and its connectivity and then they sort of studied these children as they learned to read and um, all in, in the study that the kids that learned to read uh, by age eight, uh, what you saw at age five predicted um, sort of what things would look like at age eight. So I think this is really interesting and important because there's been other work showing that you can see um, certain aspects of 18-month-old brains that have a familial risk for developing developmental dyslexia, um, and you can see differences, and that it sort of is related to some of these proto-language regions. And, and so I think that this is interesting because I feel like it can get us to the core of how the wiring in the brain of a person who ends up showing developmental dyslexia is different right from the outset and what we can do to mitigate some of the pain involved in, you know, trying to teach a child with dyslexia how to read using methods that are designed for neurotypical brains mm -hmm. and we know aren't effective in those cases. And did they control for I guess language exposure experience among the five-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, there were their own controls, so I think they were, you know, they're 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 they were looking at it that way. But I, I see. you know, I, I think see. and I think they there was probably exclusionary criteria where kids that didn't learn to read after mm -hmm. age eight were excluded mm -hmm. from the study. But yes, I think that anyway, I think that that and that, and that is a separate study from the eighteen-month-olds. So I should just make that mm -hmm. very clear. But the eighteen-month-olds are interesting again because they would have. Although I'd say most contemporary parents are exposing their kids to books and things well before 18 months. So they're certainly, they're certainly seeing these squiggles, whatever language it is. They're hearing parents say words that appearance or pictures that are associated with those squiggles. I, I guess what I'm driving at is the younger you go, 
the stronger the argument is that it's somehow something innate and not learned over time. Well, except that I think that, yeah, what what they're talking about is that even if the the propensity to develop these regions is there when you're born, it's an experience dependent process. So just yeah. like the person who, you know, like your visual yeah. cortex is yep. ready to help you see depth. But if you have, you know, if your if your yeah. eyes aren't lining up and then, and, yeah. you know, you don't have that yeah. cue. So, you know, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Reaches potential. So I see. But anyway, that I think that that was um, anyway. So this 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 work I found really fascinating. It was published in Nature's Scientific Reports, um, and the authors are Jin Lee, David Osher, Heather Hansen, and Zainab Sajin um, at, at Ohio State. So people can look up that that study if they if they are interested in this topic. But to me, I found it it, it uh, a fascinating way of answering some of these questions. Like because reading seems so mysterious, because we don't have, you know, there doesn't seem to be a, a, a way of teaching reading that applies to everybody. And like kids that don't learn how to read quickly, like they are so disadvantaged in many ways of their self esteem, and you know, because they, it's just it just seems like such an important thing to understand how these wiring differences might map onto experiences and therefore what we can do to shape those experiences to ensure that a person has the best chance of avoiding some of the challenges that happen with being taught something that, you know, your brain is not wired to do. Right. And especially if we have opportunities to identify maybe children at risk earlier, exactly. you might be able to have the opportunity to intervene earlier in some of these behavioral measures mm-hmm. that are appropriate to their cognitive style. Yeah, that's right. Or at least take the pressure off uh, of, you know, knowing that they're going to potentially have challenges when they get to first grade or or whenever they get first, you know, expected to read. You know, I think just by saying like, look, this is going to, we're going to have to take a different tack or this is going to take longer or something like that, I think would really mitigate a lot of anxiety that a lot of kids develop at that age. So anyway, I was excited. All right. So what else caught your eye? Well, going from the planetary and the moon big ideas, big, 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 you know, kind of geoplanetary consideration. To the most complex biological organ in the the world. No, no, no. To that, (laughs) to that. Now down to the most local, practical thing that gives me great satisfaction when you see something like this. And this goes to bicycle crashes at a single intersection in Tennessee. Oh, yeah. You know, we talk about that. There's this one intersection when you take, uh, you know, AJ by bike to school, you, you tell me about this intersection that you feel is really dangerous. Yeah. And that one I know is dangerous. So we won't get into that. Uh, but 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 <laughs> this right. one, but but the, the, the paper I'm talking about now, which came out of University of Tennessee, Knoxville, is in particular interested in crashes that result at a bicycle path railroad intersection Mm. because the angle, the original angle at which the bike path or basically the shoulder of the road intersected the railroad was at kind of an oblique angle, not perpendicular, but Mm. more closer to parallel and that people's tires would get stuck in the railroad tracks and they would would fall over. (laughs) Right. And this happens all the time in San Francisco down on Market Street. Mm-hmm. Maybe less so now because there's been some tremendous uh, modifications for bike safety in San Francisco. But I distinctly recall like these cable car tracks that again they have a they're not like the railroad tracks where they stick up, but rather there's a central drop mm-hmm. in in the path. And so this uh, this group at University of Tennessee Knoxville, with this this location very close to their uh, their laboratory, and the, and the professor's name is Chris Cherry, 
basically monitored this one intersection for, I think, two or three months. This is going back a couple of years now. Hmm. Okay, 2017, the paper was published. And he, and he observed in the course of two or three months, 32 crashes of people hmm. falling wow. on their bike. And he put it on YouTube, right? So you can see, it, there's no disputing. Huh. And it's just painful to watch if you're oh, an avid cyclist like I am to see these people go up and you just know they're going to bite the dust. Ugh. And it's just really painful. And some are actually quite dangerous because, again, they're on the shoulder of a road. They can basically wipe out. And in some cases, you know, the, the falling action of their bike led them, you know, into mm -hmm. the bike, into the, the driving lane. So that's, that's very dangerous. The point of the story is, is given these data, the recommendation is they would change this into what's called a jug handle turn or jug hmm. handle crossing that's an antiquated if, if you know what a jug handle design is i propose the change to be the coffee mug handle <laughs> okay, because right. to me it looks like much you know that's a more modern type of view which is it's just this little bend out and then coming back so it's a small little turn where you're going in one direction you turn right and then quickly go left to then cross the, this intersection at a 90 degree perpendicular angle or something sure, close to it right. rather than something more, you know, parallel. And of course, they made the change. It was a very low cost, basically just painting lines to say go around hmm. and come back over. And then, of course, here's the satisfying part. They collected the data and over the course of another three months, there was only one fall hmm. and it had no injury. And so essentially it was a 99% reduction wow. in the, the, the crashes and injuries. And to me, you know, <laughs> it's just such a satisfying civic, I don't know, data-driven approach to an urban or, you know, just problem solving. Like that to me is very, you know, it's very satisfying. Yeah. It almost seems like it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's, it's so rare these days that science can be done on the back of a napkin, a cocktail napkin. Yeah. But this feels like it could Yeah. Have there was no, there's no question of inferential mm -hmm. statistics here. Yeah. It went from a lot to, to almost none. Yeah. Just and, a simple T-test. Uh, exactly right. <laughs> cool. Well, I hope now that we can all stop watching vote counts and get back to reading scientific papers and learning about the world and making it a better place. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and joining me today, Adam Bristol. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.